And every once in a while, I'll hear people will say something like, you know, all religions are alike. You know, people will say, well, it's all, there's kind of this mountain leading up to God, and there are diff- different paths leading up to the you know, same mountain. And, um, and, I, and, and I would say, on the one hand, that there is a sense that all religions are very similar in many ways. But then I would point out that, in fact, biblical Christianity isn't a religion at all. All religions have commonalities, but biblical Christianity is a message that is totally at odds with all religions. It's not a religion at all in a very real way. You see, all religions basically tell you what you have to try to do to try to earn God's favor, the rules that you have to keep, the things that you have to do, or or the sins that you have to avoid to be able to avoid his anger. And so the focus is always on our responsibility of what we need to do. But the Christian message starts with the truth that we are separated by God from our sins, and there's nothing that we can do to fix that gap. We can't do it. You see, religion is all about what we do to earn our way up towards God, how we work our way towards him. The Christian message is about God coming to us. It's not about us trying to work our way, climb the ladder to him. It's about God came to us. It's not about what we do, it's about recognizing that we can't do anything, but God has done something for us that we could never do, a righteousness that is not from us, it's not from keeping the law, it's from Jesus Christ. And we admit our need and we then accept the gift of grace, we accept the gift of forgiveness that is offered to us through Jesus Christ by what he did on the cross. Now, that's the foundational way in which Christianity is different than all other religions. But in many ways, we can see that there are, there are tons of things which sets Christianity apart that is not like any other. It's not like a religion. It's totally different. It's a relationship with God. Let me give you another example. When you think about all the various religions of the world, you think about their founders, and, and there's a commonality. All of them died, in a sense, in a place of success, having accomplished great things. You know, for example, Muhammad died surrounded by his supporters and his nine living wives having established this new political kingdom. Moses died after having leading the Jews out of Egypt and and right to the border of the Promised Land. Or, Or Buddha died peacefully at the age of 80 as a respected and loved teacher surrounded by his followers. All of these people, not only these, but pretty much the founder of every religion that you could think of, died as successes, and their success was seen as, a, as, in a sense, a divine blessing upon their message. It was because they succeeded, you know, well, God's hand is on them. This shows the truthfulness of what they taught. But not only that, but because they were succeeded, succeeded or succeeding, that was part of the motivation to join their movement. Look at the success that they have. You want to be a part of this. The extreme is, is Islam. I mean, uh, when you think about that, Islam, you you could either join the victorious armies and be a part of, you know, the victorious group, or you could resist and you could be put to death. Well, that's a pretty clear, you know, distinction. Now, contrast that with the message of Christianity. I mean, all the religions, you know, their legacy is the successful leader that died in a place of, of success, but the legacy of our founder was that he was killed at the age of 33, Only three years after starting his public ministry, he was executed by the civil government leaders as a criminal. He was mocked, he was beaten, he was stripped naked, he was nailed to the cross, the most violent form of torture and execution ever devised. He was condemned 
by, uh, both by the religious leaders and the governmental leaders of his day. He was abandoned by all his followers, so that when he died, there was only one disciple and a few of his female followers that were the only ones that were there to even observe his death. Now, I ask you, if you were to start a new religion, would you start with that story? No, you wouldn't. And again, we understand why religions start the way that they do, but you would never look at Jesus and say, well, he's a hero. Where's the victory? You know, why would I follow a guy that, that, that didn't have success to prove his divine blessing, but that he died as a criminal condemned? Why would anyone want to follow this Jesus? If this is our example of greatness, then who would ever want to go down that path? If this is the high point of Christianity, you know, you know what, why, why would anybody believe that? See, Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians. Look what he says. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. Here's what he's saying. It's, it's totally backwards. It's, it's foolishness. And unless you've been saved by the message, you look at this and it makes no sense. You would say, why would anybody believe this? It, it's, it's foolishness. It's but if you understand it, you understand that it's the greatest demonstration of God's power that has ever been revealed. Now, this morning, we're going to spend some time looking at this whole message of the cross, this message that is foolishness to those outside of the Christian faith, but is the power of God to those who believe and understand. Now, we're in the middle of the series on the Apostles' Creed. And the Apostles' Creed, as we've seen, it's the oldest summation of Christian doctrine. It's, it's not in the Bible. Uh, it's not the Bible. It's not authoritative like the Bible, but everything in it comes from the Bible. And so we're not preaching from the creed. We're using it as an outline, and then we're going to the Scripture, and each week looking at the Scripture that teaches the ideas that are then outlined in the Apostles' Creed. And last week, we started what is the longest section of the Apostles' Creed. The whole middle section is all about Jesus. And so we began that section looking at Jesus, and we saw that last, you know, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. Now, I want to acknowledge that for those who know the creed, I'm going to take a little out of order here, because the next section uh, is, he was con uh, conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary, and I'm not going to talk about that today, and I'm not skipping it, I'm not avoiding it. I'm, what we're going to do is, is, that's the Christmas theme. So I'm going, to, I'm going to delay that for a couple weeks, I'm going to come back to it on the 15th and 22nd of December and, and deal with that idea right leading into Christmas. But that means I'm going to skip ahead to the next section, and that the next section is dealing not with his birth, but with his death, where it says he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. So at the center of the gospel, when we look at this, it's Jesus, who was God, who became man, we're going to see, and then that Jesus Christ came to suffer, to die on the cross. And at the center of everything that we believe is the cross, at the center of everything that we are, so that even when you come into churches, you see what? The cross. It's at the center. And even when we did the renovation, I mean, we, we highlighted it so that it would stick out because we want everybody to know that's what defines us is the cross. Without the cross, there is no Christian message. You know, it's sad, but true that there are some churches that claim to be Christian that, that feel like the appropriate thing is to downplay the cross. Well, the cross is kind of violent, and that's not very seeker-sensitive, and people don't understand that. And, and they're intentionally choosing to take out songs that talk about things like the blood of Jesus because, well, that's kind of gory and, and violent, and we don't want to do that. And what we have to realize is that as we see that, 
It's not just a pressure that was then, it's not, or, or now, it's, it's something that was historic. You know, when we think about the early church, the early church, likewise, there was a sense that, what, the, what does Paul say? It was foolishness, it was folly. That's not the message that you do that if you want to attract a lot of people, because it doesn't make sense. But they understood that from the very beginning that the cross was a symbol of, of, of what the church was. To the culture, it was a symbol of execution and torture. It was a symbol of horror. It was something that you would never embrace, something that was far more, you know, people say it's like carrying an electric chair. It was worse than that. It was something that people knew as a symbol that, that, you know, that was to be rejected, but yet the church embraced it. And that's why Paul said, as we saw, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. They don't understand it. There's no idea that they can understand. How is this something that you would embrace and see as a good thing? But to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God, because we understand why it's a good thing. See, back even then, it was foolishness to those who weren't followers of Christ. Back even then, you'd have people that would say, well, we should downplay it. But the church said, we're not going to back away from the message of the cross because it is the foundation of everything that we believe and everything that we are. Paul continued in verse 22, for the Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and a folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, uh, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Yeah, they're looking for a different message, but we understand that yes, people will stumble over that. It's not the most popular, but it's the most powerful. And it's at the core of everything that we believe. And it's the, one of the evidences of the emphasis on the cross from the earliest days is what we see here in the Apostles' Creed. So what, it starts off and it talks about Jesus' suffering and his death and his crucifixion. And right off the bat, though, I want to notice that there's probably one thing that seems a little, if you think about it, seems a little out of the ordinary. And that is it starts that he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. Have you ever wondered why does it mention Pontius Pilate? You know, why doesn't he just say, you know, crucified and died? Why does it mention Pontius Pilate? I mean, there were a lot of people that were involved in Jesus' death. I mean, are we putting all the guilt on this guy here? Are we saying that he's the bad guy that we remember? Why does it, if you think about it, the only two people outside of, you know, Jesus that were mentioned were Mary and Pontius Pilate. Why do we mention him? It seems very unusual. And the reason is that it's, it's doing something that the Bible itself does, and that it's establishing the historicity of Jesus' death and resurrection. See, the Bible makes it very clear that the events of Jesus' life and, and uh, death and resurrection were real events that happened in actual history. And one of the ways that the Bible makes this clear is in telling us the Bible and the story of Jesus. It puts it in the context of history, and it includes Names of people that we can know outside of the Bible, like Pontius Pilate, who was the governor in that area. I mean, there's coins with his name, you know, picture on it. There's, there's no question of who he was and when he reigned. It's very clear. Now, here's why it's important. Just this past week, I talked to somebody who, you know, was talking about Christ, the Christian message, and they kind of talked about how, uh, you know, Christianity is like all religions. It's all a bunch of, it's a bunch of myths. And, and he almost, you know, said it was almost like, you know, the story of the Greek gods, you know, that it's just a bunch of stories that, that people made up. And, and there are religions where it's, it's no more than myths. But here's what you've got to realize that, no, that's not Christianity. Christianity is actual historical events that happened in time. And the Bible is very clear to make that, that evident. 
Or you have other religions that, that they make spiritual claims, these great spiritual claims about things that happen, but there's no way to actually see it, you know, to, to, to test it out. You know, so Islam is based on this whole idea that, that the angel Gabriel came and gave these visions to, to Muhammad. You know, but Muhammad's the only one that can tell us if it actually happened. Or, or the Book of Mormon, you know, Joseph Smith had these, you know, this angel appear to him and he brought him these gold plates, these and, and, and these magic glasses, and he put on these magic glasses, and it translated from Egypt to, you know, to, to English, and, and he wrote it down, and, and, which is a great story, but as soon as it was done, the angel came and took the gold plates and hit them again, so that nobody can see the gold plates. There's no, there's no ability to be able to test the truthfulness of these claims. But again, what you've got to see is that the story of Jesus is put in the context of history, and the Bible is very clear to put it in the context of history so that we know that it's real. This isn't just a myth. It's not just a claim that somebody said that happened. These things happened in fact. In fact, if you look at especially Luke, Luke makes it really clear. Look at how Luke begins his book. He says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have, deli uh, have delivered them to us. Basically, he's saying, you know, there have been people that have been trying to write about Jesus, and, and, and a lot of people have done that. And what I want to do is that I want to, I want to come and I not want to build on that, but I want to make sure that I do it right, that I talk to eyewitnesses, that I talk to people that were actually heard and saw. And I want to write this as a history. You know, these other people, they're, they're incomplete. I want, to, I want to do it so that it's carefully investigated, as he talks about here, that I talk to the eyewitnesses. And... and, and um, and so these were first eyewitnesses. These were the original apostles. These were people that were there that saw him rose, raised again. And he continues on, verse 3. It seemed good to me also, having followed all these things closely for some time in the past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you've been taught. So I'm going to write it as an orderly account. I'm going to write it as a historian that is based on the rules of history. So why? So that you can have certainty concerning the things that you've been taught, that you know that these things happen. You know that they're true. And so when we talk about Jesus' death and resurrection, I want to be clear that we're not talking about a myth. We're not talking about a, a spiritual event that somebody happened. You know, they happened to somebody that we can't test the truthfulness. These are things that are true. They happened in history. They're historically true. But they're not only historical truth, they are truth. They are truth because they describe what's real. And as we talked about early, a couple weeks ago, when we talk about what's real, if it's true, it means it's true in all areas of our life. It's true for all people. It's not whether you believe it's true for you or not, it's true. The only question is whether you acknowledge it as truth, whether you embrace its truth in your own life. Now, for the rest of our time this morning, we're going to dive now into Luke 23. So if you have your Bibles open, I'd invite you to turn there. And, and we're going to see some things that, you know, we've seen the priority of the cross. And now I want to look at, at some things that are there in Luke that, that really tell us specifically about the meaning. Not just that it happened, but that Luke tells us about some of the things that this, the cross meant. And the first thing I want to point out is that Luke tells us something. There's a paradox, a paradox of Jesus' victory through the cross. Luke, like all the gospel writers, when he comes to write about Jesus' death, you know, there are a lot of people that have written about, you know, the torture of the cross and how terrible it was, and, and, uh, and it was, and it was the most horrific form of execution ever de devised. 
But when Luke writes it, he doesn't get into that detail. Look what, what he does. He just, he just, if you have your Bibles open, verse 33, he says, when they came to the place that is called the skull, and they, they there they crucified him, and the criminals, one on his right, one on his left. It's very simple. They don't go into any detail. He just said they crucified him. And, and then after that brief four-work description, he gives us a longer description of what's going on around him and people's responses and how people are interacting with Jesus as he hangs in agony there on the cross. And look at this description. If you have a Bible, look at verse 35. As the people stood by watching, but the ruler scoffed at him saying, he saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. Verse 36 tells us that the soldiers joined in this mockery. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Verse 39 tells us that even one of the criminals who were being crucified joined in this mockery. One of the criminals who were hanging there railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Now here, all of them are basically mocking Jesus with the same accusation. If you are who you say you are, if you are the Christ, if you are the powerful one of God, then prove it by demonstrating your power by saving yourself. You see what's going on here? In each instance, they're all saying, how do you demonstrate power? Self-deliverance. If you could take yourself off the cross, if you deliver yourself, then we'll know that you're powerful. How do we know that the Messiah, you know, this is the Messiah, well, if he saves himself, well, then we can start to believe. And if he can't save himself, then how can we trust him to save anyone else? See, that's the reasoning. But as this whole crowd is crying out the same challenge, why is it? Because in the world's eyes, power is so, something that is demonstrated first and foremost in self-protection and self-promotion. So they're sitting there saying, the religious leaders, we know what power is, we use it to, to promote ourselves. Romans says, we know what power is, that's how we conquer. And they're looking at it and saying, Jesus, if you have power, if you have power you're going to protect yourself. You're going to promote yourself. You know, what's interesting is that numerous times leading up to this, throughout all the Gospels, we're told that the religious leaders had been fearful of Jesus. But now Jesus is on the cross. Now his hands are spread out. Now he seems to be helpless. And in the, his weakness, his apparent weakness, they mock him. Again, he, they say, he saved others. Let him save himself if he's the Christ, the chosen one. Now, I want you to even notice in that, Notice when they say, he saved others, let him save himself. They're not denying that he saved others. They're not denying that he's done miracles. They've seen that. They can't deny it. They, they've seen him heal people, even raise people from the dead. That couldn't be ignored. And they're saying, well, sure, you claim they have power. But if you have power, then you've got to show it by, by saving yourself. And if you can't save yourself, then, then you surely you don't have power. Now, here's what you have to realize is that they all miss the, the nature of the gospel. And there is something that is so incredible being communicated here. And that's this. Only by not saving himself was Jesus able to save others through his death. They're saying, do you have power? Then save yourself. And Jesus says, well, let me show you real power. I have the power to save myself, but I'm not. Because only by not saving myself can I save others. See, they all missed that Jesus' power was demonstrated not in what he would do for himself, but it was demonstrated by the fact that here was the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the creator of all things, who was the all-powerful one who emptied himself, but now made himself nothing and allowed himself to be beaten and mocked and put on that cross, hung there as an object of ridicule. 
And this one who had all the power had also the strength and discipline and love not to use it. Because it was by the very act of not saving himself, of taking upon himself that death that he would save all humanity. And my friends, this is the message that still baffles people some 2,000 years later. This is the message that, that Paul talked about when he talked about the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. They don't understand that. They don't understand one who is powerful who wouldn't use the power to save himself. They don't understand that Jesus' power was demonstrated by not saving himself so that he would save us. And people today will look at that and say, the whole story is crazy. And I agree it is crazy. It makes no sense to us from our perspective because it doesn't make any sense in the context of how we use power and how we see truth and religion. And, but I want you to see that, again, this is a religion no one would make up. Religion is all about what we do and about power and about success. And this is a message that is totally different than religion. You see, because it's not about our power and how we do better and how we do good things. It's about all-powerful God and his love and self-sacrifice who allowed himself to be torn asunder for us. He showed his power and strength not in overcoming his enemies, not establishing an earthly political kingdom, but by the fact that he died, that he submitted to his enemies. We've, you know, he, he came and died, not to, you know, he didn't save himself, he died to save us. Now again, when we look at this, we say, okay, now how do we understand this? And again, when we look, we see in verse 33, you know, um, and he talks about, Luke says, you know, describes this, his death just in, there they crucified him. And again, what's so interesting is that there's no description. You know, you know ever, how many sermons have you heard that we talk about the agony of the cross and about you know, the medical part of it and what was... We've all seen, read, read that. I think the you know, best example of his movie is The Passion of Christ, and, and it just tries to bring out the agony of the physical suffering. You know, what's interesting is that none of the Gospels describe that. They all describe his death and suffering in very simple terms. But what's also interesting is that all the Gospels describe a moment of agony that was different than anything that was physical. All of them describe an agony, but it was an agony that was behind what was, in a sense, the shadow of the cross. And what do I mean by that? See, the, in a sense, when we look at the physical pain of the cross, that was, in a sense, a shadow. The ultimate suffering of Jesus Christ while he was on the cross was not the physical pain and the torture of the cross. That was terrible, but it was just to give us a glimpse of how bad what was happening beneath it, which was far worse. And that was that at that moment at the cross that he took, the, Jesus Christ took the Father's wrath for our sins. Now look at a picture of this here. If you have your Bibles, now look to verse 44 of Luke. It says, Now about the sixth hour, and there was a darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, when the sun's light failed. Now, we read this and you say, what in the world is it talking about? You know, it's, it's kind of unusual with the sun's light fail, this darkness over the whole land. The, the only closest thing that we may be able to suspect is a solar eclipse. You know, that if you have this, this eclipse, you know, you have this eclipse where the, you know, the moon passes before the sun and the whole, you know, everything becomes dark. And, and some people have speculated that's what happened. They've even looked at it and said, was there an eclipse at that time? I don't think that's what happened. 
And, and, and it's because of what's here. We're told that not just that it got dark, but that it was totally dark for three hours. Or people talk about maybe it was bad weather and these storm clouds came in and it was really dark. And again, what does it say? It says the sun stopped shining. I, I think it's saying something happened that was very unusual and even supernatural. And, and why do we have this description? Why is it, is it there? And some people have read it and they've, they've seen it as something that is dramatic. And I've even read commentators that talk about it was this, you know, you know, you watch a movie and when you have this dramatic scene, it gets dark and you have lightning and, and, and God was in a sense putting the drama and it was acting out a drama. But I don't think that's the case either. See, I think it's those, you know, if you know, you know, the first rule of, you know, if those are around, you know the first rule of interpreting the Bible, right? It's, you know, scripture interprets scripture. And, um, so, you know, here we're saying, well, what was going on here? Well, let's let Scripture interpret Scripture. And you know what you find, especially in the Old Testament? If you look out throughout the, the Old Testament, what you find is that the Bible repeatedly talks about darkness as an illustration of God's judgment. For example, let me give you a couple. Amos chapter 8. And on that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the, the earth and, and, uh, in broad daylight. And he's describing the day of judgment. Now, that's exactly what happened at the cross. Or you go look at Joel chapter, chapter 2. The sun shall be turned to darkness and moon to blood before the great and awesome day that the Lord, God, our Lord comes. So it's talking about this whole idea. Now, here's what's going on. When you think of hell, probably the most common mind picture that we get is, you know, lake of fire, right? That's you know, probably the most common, you know, What's interesting is that if you look in the Bible, the most common description of the Bible isn't necessarily the lake of fire. The most common description is, is utter darkness. And here's why. The Bible teaches that since God is light, God is truth, God is good, he's everything that is good, and to be banished from God's presence is to be banished to a place of outer darkness. Now here's what's happening. I believe that what Luke is describing here is in this moment, we're going to talk about this next week as well, that there's a sense that Jesus Christ literally experienced the wrath of hell. That the darkness that was happening was, was what we saw on the outside was just an illustration of what was happening in a spiritual reality in Jesus' experience at that moment. It was an agony that was suffered that is summed up by what Jesus cried out in Matthew 27, 46, when he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That there's a sense that, that literally the father turned his back on, on, on the son so that he experienced total separation from the father. And in doing so, he experienced the pains and agony of what hell is. Let me try to explain that a little bit more. See, every, the Bible teaches every good gift is from God. Every good gift is literally an expression of who God is. And even though we live in a fallen world, we still live, in a sense, as beneficiaries of, this, you know, of, 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 of the goodness of God. You know, that, you know, you've heard me say before that it's, you know, the good news for, uh, you know, for those who are, who are believers is this is as close to hell as we're going to ever get. If you're an unbeliever, the bad news is this is as close to heaven as you're going to ever get, apart from trust, trust in Christ because we, we have the brokenness of God's blessing, but we still experience some of that. See, God is the source of any love, of any goodness, of any beauty. And the only the reason that our humanity doesn't totally freeze is that God is still near us. 
We're separated, but there's still a nearness. He's like the sun, in some degree, keeping our humanity from freezing over. And this is true even of an unbeliever. Imagine that there was a group of people that they were born in a, and raised in a cave that was under the earth. Now, they were born in this cave. Uh, they've never come out of ground. They, they would disagree that there is even a sun because they've never seen it. They don't believe in the sun. Uh, they've never seen it. They've never felt it. They don't believe in it. But the fact is, the only reason they don't freeze is because of the impact of the sun and the way that it heats the earth, even though they don't see it. And if the sun were ever to really go out, they would freeze, it'd be you know, you know, minus 400 degrees, and they'd you know, die in an instant. And that's what's going on spiritually. There are unbelievers, I don't believe in God. Well, the fact is that the sun is still shining. We still see the, you know, the, the benefits of that. So any good that we experience, any love, any beauty, any pleasure, any music, all come from this light of God. And hell is described as a place of utter and outer darkness because in hell, unbelievers are totally cast away from God's presence and any vestiges of his goodness. So when God leaves you, literally, it's not only that God's presence, but when the sun goes away, your humanity freezes. Your ability to experience any love, any goodness, any beauty, any joy, those things are totally gone because they only come from, from connection with God. Now, here's what's happening. When Jesus took the sins of humanity upon himself and God's wrath of, for those sins, he was totally separated from the Father and he was plunged into that utter and, and outer darkness. He was plunged into that place of, of, of spiritual freezing of the soul. And his physical suffering on the cross, as terrible as it was, the reason that we're not giving the description, it was just a shadow of this deeper agony that really ultimately was the source of his greatest pain and his death. So what's Luke's telling us is this is the judgment day before all judgment days. At this moment, Jesus Christ took the judgment for our sins. He literally experienced what's talked about in Joel, what's talked about in these passages, that he experienced it. And what was the effect of that? The effect was that it accomplished something powerful, the ultimate power of God, where it's illustrated in what Luke says here, look in verse 45, that it talks about that the curtain of the temple was torn in two. That's amazing. When you look at this, he's describing this idea that there was a barrier that was destroyed by the cross. If you had gone into the temple at that time, the temple was full of barriers. They were everywhere. So Gentiles, you know, you could only go so far. And, and then if you were a woman, you could only go so far into the temple. And then if you're a man, you could only go so far. And then the priest could only go so far. And then, then you had the Holy of Holies. And only the high priest could go there once a year and had this incredibly thick curtain because it was just, all these messages were stay out, stay away. God is not accessible. Why? Because the Bible teaches that we are separated by God by our sin. And our sin justly deserves God's wrath. And so if we were to stand in the presence of God in our sin, we, we would experience his punishment. We would be destroyed justly. Hell is that eternal separation. But the fact is that even in the here and now, we experience a separation. And there's nothing we could do to fix it. Religion is trying to fix it. We cannot fix it. The Christian message is that we cannot fix it, but God came to fix it for us. And how did he do it? When Jesus Christ came, he died on the cross, and we're told that that veil was torn from the top to the bottom. That thing that separated us from God was torn by God himself, because now all sacrifices are finished. Now that this thing that kept us away from God could be removed. And how is that? Because what it teaches is that Jesus Christ at the cross, in a sense, both takes both our sin 
and the wrath of God that our sin deserves. Let me even try to illustrate that. You know, if we look at it even here in this picture on the cross, you know, here in a sense, if I could say, if I could just you know, symbolize and say, you know, here it's, you know, here's what, if, if we could have a picture of who we are and of what we wear and of what we deserve, you know, here's, you know, I'm wearing my sin, I'm wearing my, my, my fallenness. This is who I am. And I justly deserve God's wrath. I deserve his punishment. But what happens is at the cross, Jesus literally takes this off of me. He takes off not only my sin, but then he takes it upon himself. And when he takes it and hangs it upon himself, he takes also the wrath of my sin, the punishment that my sin deserved. And so that Jesus wears it. It's no longer mine. I don't have this verse up on the screen, but let me read Colossians 2. And you were once dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with him, having forgiven all our sins by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He nailed it to the cross. It was nailed onto Jesus Christ. It's no longer mine. But the beauty is even more than that. Because if you look at it, you say, well, okay, well, he's got rid of my sin. Well, then I need to work my way. I, the thing that kept me from God is still not there, but I need to prove my righteousness. My friends, the beauty of the gospel is that not only does he take our sin and God's wrath, but Jesus also then gives us his righteousness and our reward. He's the one who lived the perfect life. He's the one who lived without. And, and, and what he does at the cross, he not only takes our sin, but he takes his perfection. And he, and he takes it off of him and he places it on us. And so those of us who deserved his wrath, that by, we're, by nature that we're sinners, suddenly now I'm righteous. I stand before God as righteous, as holy, not because I'm good, not because of the things that I do, not because I try hard enough, not because of any of those things, but because Jesus Christ has been righteous and holy for me. Look what it says in 2 Corinthians. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. That's what he did here. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. In him, I now bear the righteousness of God. Now in him, now I'm not just not the sinner that I'm trying to work my way. No, that I stand before God as holy, as righteous, because, I, because God sees not my behavior, but he sees what Jesus has done for me. So the question is, what do we do with this? Ultimately, there's an invitation of the cross that Jesus Christ died, and he died for all who would believe. But the question is, how do we respond? And the fact is, you could even see there in Luke, and you see, uh, let me take, for example, Luke 42, uh, uh, 23, 47. Now, when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for the spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. The crowd was moved emotionally, but they weren't saved. The, the centurion saw there was something different, something spiritual. Man, this guy was righteous, and, but he wasn't saved by that. It's not just understanding and knowing what's going on. It's not just being moved by it. It's, it's what we see really a little ahead. If you look back to 43, 41 and 42 and 43, you see one of the criminals who looks at Jesus and said, you know, we deserve, we're getting what we deserve. But then he says to Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. So the question is, Jesus has done this, but I've got to, in a sense, ask him to take my sin off. 
I have to ask him to give me his righteousness. And the thing is, just because I know that doesn't mean that it's mine. It's an invitation that he gives to each and every one of us. And the question is, have you ever done that? Have you trusted in him for your forgiveness of sins? Have you made the message of the cross not only something that you know is beautiful, but that you know is is yours? Thanks for joining us. If you have any questions about what we talked about, Jesus Christ, our church, or anything else, connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or by email. We'd love to hear from you.